turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It's a delight to do so with the Holman 2. Hugh Holman is an attorney in town, an educator, civic uh, activist, participant, philanthropist. Lewis Holman is the managing director of Insight Analytics, LLC. Insight spelled with a C, not an S. And it's a delight. We have them in. Or a GHT. Yes. No G- <laughs> right. No S, no GHT. And no well, X. Well, no GH, but there, yeah, exactly. Uh, Sorry, that's Hugh making fun. Yeah. We can come in again. No, we okay. don't have to come <laughs> in again. This is live. We're, this is radio. Irving Crystal said that foreign policy is actually easy. You just have to know what's right and what's wrong. Turns out it's not so easy because a lot of people actually lack the ability to understand right and wrong. But, Lewis, you came in talking about all kinds of things that were kind of interesting off the radar screen that should be on. Take it from there. Absolutely. So I, I actually I agree. You know, if we had a universal assessment of, of what was right and we could all act with clarity and understand the future, foreign policy would be easy. But sadly, as we all know, we're very limited not only in our capacities to understand and emphasize, but also to see what's going on in the world. I'd like to kind of set the table a little bit here. We are in a very strange period of American history coming out of uh, about 20 years of failed expeditionary nation building in the Middle East. This is an America that has a very different perspective on the foibles and follies of foreign interventionism than did the America of two decades prior. And so we're in a strange place where we have support on one side of the aisle to send weapons and munitions to Ukraine. And then in an entirely different part of the world, we see the polar opposite, where the, the side that in Ukraine wants us to be more engaged would have us turn away from the Israeli conflict. And the side that wants us distance in the Ukrainian conflict would have us offer full-throated support to Israel. It's a very strange position to be in. And it makes us ask really hard questions about who we are, when intervention is warranted, and what our role in the world should be. I'll make the case that it's not obvious. Currently, both sides of the aisle seem to believe that some intervention is warranted. The the problem is that we can't agree where, when, on whose behalf, and in what form the intervention should take. I'll make the case, though, that Even in the Israel and Palestine case, which many on the left would see as a very, very clear-cut case, somewhat controversially to to those among us who don't agree that uh, uh, the murder of 1,400 civilians is the best way to uh, uh, send a missive and improve the state of one's one's people. However, we're, we're, we're now in a place where the unthinkable has happened, the shooting has started, and sides are being picked. So what is the just response? Clearly, 
our foreign policy is not motivated by body count. That civilians die is not sufficient provocation for U.S. foreign military intervention. If it were, we would already still be in the Middle East. The Israeli and Palestinian conflict currently is only the second deadliest conflict in that region, behind, of course, the conflict in Yemen, which has killed to date about 150,000 people over the past nine years. It's not the bloodshed that bothers the left. It is the convenient entanglement of the Israeli and Palestinian conflict with themes that are sympathetic to their political institutions, namely the causes of anti-Westernism, anti-imperialism, and colonialism. These are the talking points that guide the left's anger and make it want to move as a force in the world for a historical project that would see the old sins of uh, colonization removed. So where do we go? How do we make sense of a foreign policy? What should our foreign policy be? I would contend that our foreign policy should be not only based upon need and helping others and the stemming of global horror, but also our strategic interest, shared values, shared purpose, and shared causes. I'm tremendously sympathetic to the Israeli cause in this front. Not that the Israeli administration is blameless in its historical record. No administration is. But in the region, they are a beacon, relatively, of human rights and Western values. And these are causes that matter. As we look ahead, there's going to be a lot of argument and a lot of disagreement over where we should be allocating our resources. I think that the incorrect answer is pure isolationism. We need some level of engagement. The lessons of the 20th century, the bloodiest century in human existence, have taught us the costs and perils of sitting by and doing nothing. But we need to be very careful not going in blindly just to win the battle, but we need to think through how we win the peace. Because ultimately, that was our great failure in Iraq and Afghanistan. And currently, we are now looking at an Israel that has two choices. Either it can let what happened go unanswered, in which case 1,400 may die again in three months or six months' time. This solves nothing and prolongs the crisis. Or... They can do something. They can go into Gaza. They can try and reshape the region, either driving Hamas out entirely or, or, or somehow coming to a reconciliation with the Palestinians. This will be long and protracted and bloody. Urban combat, tunnel combat at its ugliest in a dense civilian-filled population. People will die. But if nothing changes, we've seen this song advanced before. Israel occupied Gaza for decades. Unless there is a plan to win the peace, all we will do is repeat where we have been in time, whether that's next year or a decade from now. Do you think we or anyone can have peace there? Do you think peace is an objective that can be achieved? The reason I ask is 
it might be a question of mere survival and Corjon sanitaires at the end of the day, as best as can be achieved. This is a region that hasn't known a lot of peace. A lot of people expect the Jews and the Muslims to get along in Israel. Um, Lebanon is free of Jews and is a slaughterhouse. Syria is a slaughterhouse. Uh, we don't look at Iran, excuse me, at, at Iraq as any kind of Valhalla of peace. Is peace an objective that can be obtained? Wow, that's a great question, Seth. And and I think it really illustrates the challenge. It's not obvious that in some places peace is possible, certainly not easily, or in a manner that's abundantly clear. And it may be the case that that great suffering has to happen before a path to peace is apparent. There isn't an obvious one in the current equilibrium. The current suite of options don't seem to be sufficient. Yemen ain't too hot. No. No, absolutely not. You want to tell the death toll of Yemen? You were talking to me about that. You know? Right. Yemen, in the, in the last uh, nine years since 2014, uh, there have been, uh, per the UN, 150,000 deaths, with some estimates as high as 230,000. So we're talking like 16,000 a year on average. Yes. No one talks about it. Right. No one's marching on Colombia. Right. And, and it's because death itself, the, the death and destruction of unfortunate peoples— is not a politically motivating facet for action. It is you, a sad, ugly truth of human politics. Do you think there's a subtle, soft bigotry here, that this is just to be expected of certain populations? Tutsis and Hutus. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of things going on with this. I think one of the things that's going on is that our morality is bounded and it is reserved and gradated uh, and, and, and uh, spent more on those closest to us. We have a str- I have a stronger... Uh, connection empathetically with my twin brother than I do with a cousin. Right. And I have a stronger connection to a cousin than I do with a neighbor and with a neighbor than a stranger right. and with a countryman than a foreigner, you know, in, in, in some sense. And it is very, very difficult for the problems of those in another part of the world that look nothing like us, that share no historiography, it is hard for those problems to cross our radar unless we are otherwise incentivized. Can we pick up on that? Yes, as Adam Smith pointed out in his work uh, 300 years ago. We'll care more about the end of our little finger than if 100 million of our brethren in China die from an earthquake. Yeah, let's pick up on all that. Hugh Hallman is my guest along with Lewis Hallman. He and he and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman are my guests. Lewis Hallman of Inside Analytics, LLC. Hugh Hallman, an attorney in town, an educator, and among other things, former mayor of Tempe. I don't think I even mentioned that. Um, kind of like the Thomas Jefferson gravestone, right? It was never mentioned that he was president of the United States, per his choice, if I'm not correct. mistaken. That he had correct. three other uh, achievements he thought were more important. Um, did you want to respond to anything well, that's been said? I think Lewis set the table very well, and it is this... Uh, matrix I'm trying to fill out. I think we have identified uh, the left version that explains the choices in international affairs, foreign affairs, that have the left motivated. And it's been discussed really over the last two weeks as we see the Students for Justice in Palestine marching on college campuses. It is that fairly easy oppressed oppressor. And one can explain 
Ukraine and Israel-Palestine right now, Palestinians, with that fairly clearly, that the reason the left still supports Ukraine is that Ukrainians are viewed as the oppressed and Russians viewed as the oppressors. And in Israel, the Israelis are viewed as the oppressors and Palestinians the oppressed. And it's a much easier metric to use to determine which side you're going to be on. Lewis announced that in the opening with the ideas of colonialism and all the other pieces that you look at. But it boils down to who is oppressed and who are the oppressors. I'm having a harder time figuring out what is causing uh, Republicans to split over Ukraine and Russia. I can't quite put my finger on the uh, the logic that says we support Israel in its fight against Palestinians who murder, but we are not going to now support, and it is not now. We used to. Six months ago, Republicans were equally likely as Democrats to support Ukraine. I don't understand what's quite changed um, other than the $33 trillion that we recognize has been spent in the past that is the debt for the U.S. and that Spending another $60 billion on Ukraine uh, doesn't see a, a, a return on investment, a, a, an NOI that makes as much sense. I would argue, or I believe, I should say it this way, that what dictates my support for one side or the other in those battles are things like I look at who is not just being oppressed, but who who are the victims, who are the actors that demonstrate a lack of moral uh, basis for their actions. 1,400 Israelis, all of whom more or less were Jewish, gets mixed up with was it an act of terrorism against Israelis or was it out and out a slaughter of Jews, the most horrific slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust. To put it into perspective, and it's been wrongly described in other places. The number of people in the United States who died on 9-11 from the terrorist attacks was approximately, because we have some fudging still on numbers, 2,996 people. If you then compare that to the population of the United States, it's a number that's too small to try to dictate. But when you then take the same proportion of the population in Israel with 1,400 people murdered by terrorists out of the population of 9 million, it would have been the equivalent had the U.S. seen death of 42,610 people. It's a huge proportion of the population, 42,000 people. And our response was to go into Afghanistan and into Iraq and try to rebuild those countries and destroy the infrastructure that caused that kind of mayhem. And now we have an administration that, in contrast, says to Israel— Be slow. Be careful. There's no excuse for the deaths of innocents here. Proportionality, proportionality. Well, as I think you said on Monday, proportionality in that instance would be for the uh, uh, armed forces of Israel to go into uh, Gaza and murder 1,400 innocent people and brag about it on their Twitter feeds. That's the difference. So I I also think it's it's interesting perhaps to take a a, a – deeper historically informed assessment of uh, proportional responses, shall we? Uh, 
looking at the, the U.S.'s own uh, actions under the name of proportional response, I'm reminded of uh, an occurrence in the, I believe, late 1980s uh, in which a U.S. Navy vessel was damaged in the Persian Gulf by uh, uh, the Iranian Navy. Talking about and, the Vincennes. Mm-hmm. I believe Operation Praying Mantis was yep. the, the name of we the... We got rid of the Iranian the Navy in about Half ten of the minutes. Iranian Navy yep. and three uh, oil uh, platforms yep. uh, that then still have never come back online. Well, 1986, then. we had two people in Germany uh, murdered uh, by terrorists, and we the result was to blow um, up... Bomb, Tripoli bomb, Tripoli, and, and yeah, exactly. So we got Gaddafi's daughter, and yeah, and said. and that that is the difference. The moral, days. the moral difference was there is not a person I spoke to at the time who was happy that Gaddafi's daughter had died. Right. Ronald Reagan, speaking to the nation, said, "It is unfortunate, but if we have to do it again, we will." Right. That is to say. That innocent person dying was not something we celebrated. In contrast to students on American campuses running around celebrating the death of 1,400 Jews. That's the difference of morality that we've changed. I want to hit one last yep. thing. Um, the, this metric of oppressed, oppressor, yeah, or not. I want to go there, too. The, this I can't quite tease out yet, and I thought you guys would help us tease out. What is it that is telling Republicans not to any longer support Ukraine? but go full-throated to support Israel. I, I do want to pick up on that. There's one other note I, I do want to add. No, we'll but, get to it. But, we'll get to it. Because right, right. I, I have one an ancillary thing. point, too. Go ahead, Lewis. On the proportionate response, proportional response does not necessarily mean the same, which no, is the correct. point I'm trying to make. And you're and, right. And, the, the, the law of war makes it very clear. Proportionality is misused in general parlance to mean the same number or the same kind. And that's not what it means. It's a very different concept in, in the law of war. That is why the U.S. could drop nuclear weapons on Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima. And those were mostly innocent people. It was to cause the complete and utter surrender of Japan in the same way we caused the complete and utter surrender of Germany because we needed to stop the, the purveyance of that philosophy because it was so pernicious to human beings. Um, we're going to go to a break. Let me try a temporary I also answer. want to get back to your peace question, by the way. Uh, okay, and I want to come back to a oppressor, oppressed. And oppressed. everybody's following this on radio, I trust. Yeah. You all have your metrics out and are making notes to – quick answer to your question that I'm not fully convinced I'm right about, but I believe the distinction between Ukraine and Israel and where the Republican Party is, is in the case of Ukraine, it's about sending arms and money. And whereas the Republican perspective when it comes to Israel is about getting out of the way and just letting Israel do what it needs to do without much fortune from from America. I think that's a tentative answer to your question. Uh, you can respond to it when we come back. I also do want to talk about something I'm calling now five-minute experts, if we can. The Hallmans and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis and Hugh Hallman are my guests. Gosh, there's so much on this table. We need hours uh, for this hour. But I'm concerned a little bit about five-minute experts. We saw a lot of this during covid Someone who had never heard of ivermectin had a very strong opinion within three minutes of being told what side they needed to be on. With regard and how to, to pronounce it. And how to pronounce it and what it was. 
I think we have the same here with some of the terminology um, that was being uh, 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 discussed in the previous segments. Oppressed, oppressor, that dichotomy, colonialist, colonized, and that sort of thing. And then you added two other interesting um, notions to this as well, Hugh. The moral basis of who was right and who was wrong, and also one I would add, which is instigation, who is the initiator. Um, And I think all all of those are important. The oppressed oppressor thing is really hard to put a finger on in some respects and not in others. You have one Jewish state in the midst of 22. Uh, The colonialist argument is an interesting question itself. When you hear River to the Sea, you're going back to pre-1947 UN partition bounds, which means you are going back to a colonialist moment. You are going back to the British mandate. That was the colonizing. If there is a non-colonial entity in the Middle East, I think there's only two. Lewis and you may know better. But I think there's only two non-colonialist entities by definition in the Middle East, Egypt and Israel. I think they're the only two. You might argue that Turkey. Oh, uh, you might argue that Turkey, but you might argue it's but they were the col- they were the yeah. colonists. Right, yeah. <laughs> <They were laughs> right, 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 right. The Spanish. Right, right. Um, and it does get us to this very, very difficult question that Americans are uncomfortable discussing. I think, which is the question I posed to you, gentlemen, which is: Can there be peace? I'm not convinced there can be. Jews were always living in that territory. They didn't always control it, but they were always living there. But they were also always being slaughtered there. In 1929, there were massacres against Jews. In 1936, 1937, 1938, there were massacres against Jews by the, by the, by the Mufti's powers. And before there was in Israel, the Mufti aligned with Hitler um, for a purpose, and it wasn't because of the Jews in Baghdad. Um, so I just don't know that peace is the possible outcome here. I almost think it's about survival, um, and I think that for those that have simple solutions about a new two-state solution, um, I, I, I think that is so far in the rearview mirror at this point. There have been five times the Palestinians have been offered a state by the Israelis. Five times they've turned it down. Well, it started with the UN. Yes, and that would be the first. Yes, the first time. And the immediate response was for War. the Arab states to then line up on the border of Israel and try to push right. Israel as a entity into the sea. Right. That's literally— the same calls you here today. That's right. where that chant comes from, young people on college campuses. Uh, and so the res- the response to a two-state solution was uh, Arabs saying absolutely not. And, I, of course, I have to use that carefully because Jews from Israel, born and lineage from Israel, are Arabs. Uh, as we, I was reminded by a, a listener that, um, let's see, this dates back to Cain and Abel. That's the point, that the religious piece of this is so— and Jacob in, and Esau. Yeah, well, yeah. argue, argue. The uh, sons we, of Shem, actually. Yes, all right. Now, well, let's throw in Seth. Now we don't, the, the point would be that we have a religious base in these fights that um, overrides any notion of a renaissance. And we have Jews who occupied the area thousands of years ago. We have Christians then developing a religion uh, uh, 2,000 years ago. And Islam developing a religion uh, 1,300 years ago, 1,400 years ago. And 
the challenge we face is there is a unique asset, Jerusalem, in which all three of them designate that as the center spot. And you can't duplicate it. Uh, the response to say that Zionists could go to South America someplace makes no sense at all when one's history is in this very location and region. That's a tough thing to create a peaceful solution over when there's a unique asset that cannot be divided and three very intent religions holding that as a unique place. Uh, let's that's, pick up on that's that. That's a tough thing. Yeah, no, it, it, it is. And it's an interesting question, too, considering the trajectory and consider— it's an interesting thing, too, to walk through Jerusalem and notice that and notice what's respected and what's disrespected, by the way. It's a very interesting thing. I didn't pick up on it until 2019, my last trip there. I'll say something about that when we come back. Lewis Hallman is my guest. Hugh Hallman is my guest. And we'll be right back. One of the most uh, interesting aspects of all of this is somehow the American or the Western mind thinking it can solve non-Western solutions to a point of peace. Moshe Ahrens once put it, the Middle East is not the Middle West. And we would do well somehow to remind ourselves of that occasionally when we think of peace as the outcome. But Lewis, take it anywhere you want. There's so, a lot on the table. So you, you asked me if, if peace is possible, yeah, right, Seth. Right, right. Do you think if you were in Germany in 1625, 10 years before the signing of the Treaty of Westphalia, that you would have thought peace in Germany, in the heartland of Europe, was an impossibility? War had been raging at that point for 20 years, and perhaps a fifth of the continent's population lay dead. My point is yeah, right. I, that peace I, mm -hmm. is hard, and peace is a distant, distant goal. And it is one that can appear unimaginably far away. I imagine that in 1944, peace seemed unimaginably far away, to the inhabitants of Japan or Germany or England or France or the U.S. I don't, we don't know what the conditions to secure peace are until we get there. I think that's one of the big fundamental truths about conflict. But there is this moment of modernity that has been with us for some time that didn't exist back then. In other words, we have models, and we've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of models of peaceful coexistence between peoples and between nations that didn't exist before Westphalia. So was there ever a historical period in which there was peace in the Middle East then? I, th I, I would contend that there were. Under the rule of the Ottomans, in fact, it was relatively peaceful for quite a long stretch of time. Now, the geopolitical reality of the Middle East in its current state, I think, is fundamentally incompatible with peace. So something dire would have to change about the region. What the specific cocktail of change is, I have no idea. I don't think anybody does. Part of the answer to that point you made, though, Seth, is also that's a very Western view in this regard. Um, when Genghis Khan, or Genghis Khan, if you prefer, had his empire that covered most of Asia, Central Asia, and all the way up to half of us, Austria, it was relatively peaceful within his confines. Um, that most of the world looked at what was going on in Europe through 1400 as a backwater and a bunch of morons who were like, we now look at the Middle East going, what are these crazy people doing? Because British people were murdering one another over whether you were Catholic or Protestant. Right. The great sure. stable empires of the 1500s were the gunpowder empires of India and China and, and, and Turkey. Also 
the 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 Europeans in that day they were scattered, fragmented marcher lords killing each other over backwards issues of religion and resources. But, exactly. But they knew what peace was, and today we don't all operate under the same dictionary. Ali Khamenei and Nasrun, uh, uh, Nasr, uh, uh, Nasrallah, Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah's idea of peace, is very different than every Israeli's idea of peace. Well, every, every Israeli's every... idea of peace is civil rights to Palestinians, human rights to Palestinians, allow them to serve in the judiciary and in parliament and own property. Hassan Nasrallah's idea of peace is no Jews. And the the uh, Protestant view of peace in uh, Great Britain in England and Scotland was no Catholics, mm-hmm. right? It is a, pers- a historic perspective that eventually became peaceful coexistence. What is the price of getting there? Certainly in the U.S. in the Civil War, the price was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people di- dead. Sure. The price of peace in world after World War II was millions yeah. and millions of people, 20 million Russians alone. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. and the Great Britain suffered 80,000 war dead specifically, but look at the rest of the world's sacrifice to reach that point of peace. But the Catholics and the Protestants could still look at the book of Matthew. Uh, not the same book of Matthew. But you Nor would they do so civilly. Well, but, 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 but ultimately they had the same understanding of what peace was under Christ. And you don't have that right now, and you will never have that with a religion— uh, such as radical Islam, which is seemingly unreformable. I have to challenge the, you. Uh, 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 we'll both challenge okay. it. The reality was no Catholics. You have the uh, a, a sibling, or more or less, half-sibling, putting to death her sister because she was Catholic. That's the point. Richelieu and the Huguenots did not have a mutually compatible understanding of peace. There was no world in which both of those two were going to get their way and how, coexist. How long ago was that? 400 years. Okay. Well, that's a long time. Right. We, we can still make the case about the Troubles in Ireland. That was only a few decades ago. Yeah. Yeah, we could, except— And that conflict lasted for 80 years. Yeah, we could, except that most of the world understood what terrorism was there and what side was terrorist and what wasn't, and that there was a way forward without— terrorism based on the similar principle under the same book of Matthew. The key detriment to peace is the same anywhere. You have to have two parties that have no chance at reconciliation. As long as their goals are mutually incompatible, you cannot have peace. Whether there is a commonality of religion or worldview that might make that that facilitation take five years or 10 years or 50 years or 500 years is fundamentally immaterial. Peace is possible. The road to that peace may be very, very, very long, depressingly long. And rocky. Okay, so what do you do in that period? What do you do in those 400 years that you think that— Pray. Make good ethical decisions. Be a good man. That's all you can do. That's all one can ever do. Okay, so what does it mean for Israel to be a good man right now? I think Israel has to defend itself. We, we, I think, all agree that, and you started to tease this out, the, the metric for the right. I always believed it was looking at a shared set of values that began with a notion that everybody had a right to live uh, by his own values as long as he didn't interfere with other people's rights. That's fundamentally the libertarian sort of basis for uh, our societies. And then you build from there your, your, 
your structure to determine how much uh, interference there will be from government or not. In this instance, that's where I don't understand folks on the right. We, as the U.S., signed an agreement stating that we would protect Ukraine and its its uh, boundaries, its territory, and that that was sacrosanct. And we got Russia to sign it and Great Britain and Northern Ireland to sign it, in exchange for which the Ukrainians looked to us for protection and gave up all their nuclear weapons. Because whether you like it or not, the U.S. thought it was in its interest to have fewer people with nuclear weapons. The same happened with Kazakhstan. As somebody who believes in American strength being used for good, I am very hard-pressed to say that a treaty that doesn't date beyond 30 years is not worth upholding. If we do not uphold our word for that, no ally can trust us. And we already experimented on this when we allowed Russia to go into into, uh, Crimea. And Barack Obama, uh, his understudy Joe Biden, understood that lesson, did nothing about it, and now we saw Vladimir Putin do it again. How conservatives can walk away from that obligation is beyond me. It also might be a function of what we were speaking of earlier, what I was speaking of earlier as the five-minute expert. You know, the views about Ukraine were very different when Donald Trump was president. You know, Donald Trump used to brag about being the first to arm the Ukrainians, and he used to brag about how good a man Zelensky was. And on any other given interview that he may do, particularly one with Maria Bartiromo about six months ago, he said he would send Ukraine everything we had if Putin didn't um, pacify. So it's it's I'll, I, what I'd like to do is in this last segment, Hugh, you sent around a piece from The New York Times the other day and just talk about all of these regions. And we didn't even really get to Asia, unfortunately, and why we have them, all these hot spots. Will you do that when we come back? Please. Thanks. Lewis Holman and Hugh Holman have been my guests. We're going to try and put a bit of a bow on this. Lou, I'll let you say something. Lou, I'll, I'll let you say something, and then let Hugh have the last word as the Potter familias here. So, where to end today? Called worse. Come on. <laughs> so, where, where to end today? Uh, I'm struck really by this tension in American foreign policy. The fact that our political aisle is so starkly divided across two conflicts. Uh, with with very little consistency. Now, as we've said, the left seems we can understand. There's a there's a historical thread of grievance uh, that one can track that makes their positions take sense. But the the Republican position, I think, especially from first principles, is harder to arrive. I think that we're now in a place where where previously um, the foreign policy establishment was certainly much more embedded with the Republican Party. We we, we moved and dealt and thought about our foreign policy from those kind of Republican first principles that you were you were alluding to last uh, last segment. But now I think that we've moved to a point where we are not being led as much by conviction and uh, our our philosophies so much as by our desire to oppose and win at the contest of politics and to do the opposite of what our enemies do. That's where we're sitting. And that, I think, is what is driving Republican Party stratagem at this point, which to I, use that term loosely. Yeah, which I find sad because one cannot claim to be an independent thinker and pushing forward a principled position when one's greatest determiner is what one's opponent says. And this is where I think it's as interesting with respect to Israel because the left— the hard left clearly is 
pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel. And the president of the United States, Joe Biden, is currently defending the ground of Israel over the voices of his opposition. He has been booed by his own side. And what I think we need as conservatives to do is to analyze what are the right things to do and do them so that we continue to hold the high ground. There are now three world conflicts that didn't exist just four years ago. And the New York Times talks about uh, in a recent editorial that Joe Biden actually knows what he's doing in Ukraine, supporting Ukraine over Russia, in Israel, supporting Israel over Palestinian terrorists, and in Taiwan, supporting Taiwan against the Chinese. Well, all three of those positions are the fundamental, in my view, conservative position. And I don't understand those who are now opposing it. And if Joe Biden says blue, we have to say red. I would much prefer that we make our decisions based on our principles and recognizing who is in the right, not who is pretended to be the oppressor and the oppressed, but who of the people in the battlefield are those who are worth supporting. And in my view, that's Taiwan, Israel, and Ukraine. Let's be a party of leaders rather than a party of followers. For Mr. Salman and Mr. Dahl, I wish you all a very safe, happy All Hallows' Eve. Mr. Dahl himself is dressed as Dirty Harry, protecting the innocent, going after the guilty. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth. Class dismissed.